Today, I'm really delighted to uh, welcome to the program uh, Andrew Burroughs, who uh, lives here in Kenosha, but who works in Evanston for a, a company called IDEO, a consulting firm which uh, helps all kinds of, of different companies and institutions uh, grapple with various problems of one kind or another. And uh, he is an engineer with them. And uh, we don't take enough time to talk about the work that engineers do. And uh, so that's one of the things that we will do today, chiefly by talking about this really interesting uh, book called Everyday Engineering, uh, How Engineers See. And uh, the book is very thoughtfully put together with wonderful photographs of all kinds of, of things that we would see around us and just breeze right past without seeing the detail there or the way in which things are put together. And, of course, those are the kind of details that engineers work with all the time. They're often details which an engineer creates. And so that's the kind of thing which an engineer will see that the rest of us are so apt to miss. And uh, so we're going to talk about all of this and more over the next few minutes with uh, Andrew Burroughs. Andrew Burroughs, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you, Greg. Good to have you here. I'm really excited about this. I'm so glad you pointed out something which I missed in your book, which is actually at the afterword, in which you explain kind of the seminal moment where the, the idea, the concept of this book came together. It happened in a coffee shop of all places. Tell our listeners about that. Yes. Um, it was a, a few years ago, and I was on a break at work um, between doing some interviews for some new candidates, and we went down to a coffee shop to uh, sort of take that break. And as we were standing there in line, we were standing in front of this large pastry cabinet, uh, and I was explaining to my colleague how... Uh, the person must have been feeling whose job it was to tighten the screws that were holding this large piece of glass in, in position and how sort of nerve-wracking that would be if you tighten those screws too much. Perhaps the whole sheet of glass would, would crack. You know, you might get fired or something. You'd go home and tell your spouse you lost your job and all these things. Or maybe if you didn't do it tight enough, perhaps the glass would slip down. you get called back the next day to come and fix it and all those kinds of things you know, in my head. And as I was standing there talking to her, she was just looking at the pastries through the glass. <laughs> and and so we had this realization that we could be standing here looking at exactly the same scene and yet seeing two completely different stories emerge. And that was the beginnings of it. Um, she encouraged me to go away and sort of start collecting more of these interesting stories through the eyes of an engineer. And over the course of a, a few years, that collection built up and ended up as a book. Very good. It's a wonderful book, and what a great concept because, of course, most of us in more ways than one spend our lives looking at the pastries and uh, the pastries of life and uh, do not devote very much time at all, if any, at uh, looking at some of the, let's call them ancillary details that uh, might be just as interesting or maybe even more so once in a while. Uh, when is it that you got the idea to become an engineer? I mean, how did you find your way into this field? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, it's hard to really pinpoint when that was. I, I think I always had it in me. You know, it's just I was one of those kids who loved to experiment and build things. Um, I used to do all kinds of experiments in my bedroom. I had a chemistry set that I played with a lot. Um, uh, when I was a little bit older, I would take lawnmowers apart and try and put them back together again and, and all those kinds of things. I was very uh, – I spent a lot of time actually working with my hands, sort of building sculptural kinds of things. So it was a combination of, you know, grease under the fingernails and um, a little bit of sort of artistic feel in them. I have, my family is actually more artistic than it is engineering, actually. Um, 
And then as I started to, I was, went to school in England, and as I started to um, think about what career I might have, um, I spent uh, uh, a day actually in London with, with a colleague of my father's, a friend of my father's who was an engineer, and uh, he sort of quizzed me a little bit about my, my natural inter- interests and instincts, and um, he said, well, you know, it sounds to me like this is, this is where you should be heading, and so, and it felt good to me. I ended up uh, pursuing that, that career. Uh, and and here I am. So very good. I think it's hard for us. Maybe this is something else we can talk about just a little bit. Um, the, the the term engineer seems like an exceptionally broad term, and not only in terms of what you do in your work, for instance, with this firm in Evanston, but also as an academic discipline. I'm trying to get my head around. I mean, just what one studies in order to be uh, a skilled engineer. It, it just sort of seems like you'd have to study the whole world somehow and the way the whole world works. Yeah, and engineering is, a, is an incredibly broad field. and I think that was driven home to me, actually, when I was in, um, at, at school in London, at the University uh, Imperial College in London, and I was studying hard to be a, 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 you know, a, an engineer, a professional engineer. And up on the ninth floor of the building we were at, there was a room, and it was called Engineer's Room. <laughs> and we looked at that as students and thought, you know, what are we doing? Are we, you know, are we spending our time here to end up, you know, with a career that, you know, so that that brought home to, I think, to, to us as students and to me now that, that it extends everywhere from um, the role of an engineer who needs to look after, let's say, the, the heating and ventilation systems, those are also engineers, to, um, to people who design bridges, uh, products that you touch, uh, cars that you drive. Um, you know, the, to be an engineer is really to make things work. And mm. so that, that can extend across a wide range. And it's not just I'm a mechanical engineer myself, um, but then that field extends well beyond mechanics um, into electrical engineering and software engineering. And, and um, you know, the field is, is very, very broad. It's, it's hard to capture it all with one, just one word. Right. Actually, this brings to mind the, the company you work for in Evanston, IDEO, uh, because they deal with a lot of different things, and some of which have nothing at all to do with mechanical engineering. Uh, well, for instance, uh, you, you were telling me before we went on the air that, that a hospital might approach you with a problem such as... Yes. So, um, for example, we've had, we've had um, experiences where hospitals have come to us and said, uh, we are not happy with the, the experience that our patients are having uh, coming into our building. Our building works fine. Our, you know, our, our healthcare procedures are all great. But patients come in, they're confused, bewildered. Um, and, you know, in this day and age, especially in this country where hospitals are sometimes competing for business almost uh, with each other, it's actually very important to be able to offer patients an experience that they don't, um, you know, regret or, or uh, you know, there's a very, very positive experience. And so we have a, a methodology at IDEO that allows us to really, um, the first thing we would do on a, on a challenge like that, and whether it's an engineering problem or uh, more of a human problem like, like this one, we would go out and spend time in the field, if you like, sitting in the waiting room with the patients. Perhaps um, we've even done things sometimes where we would actually dress up, um, you know, get, get gowned up uh, and go through the experience of being a patient in an emergency room or in, in a hospital setting um, with, with the goal of really trying to understand what, what the problems are uh, before we try and solve them. Because um, engineers are very good at solving problems, but it's often a question of, are we solving the right problem? And so what we're trying to get at in the, in the first stages of the work when we, that we do at IDEO is really to, uh, first of all, establish that we are doing the right thing. And so we very often will go and watch 
And sometimes we'll ask questions, but sometimes if you ask a question, you know, what is the problem, um, you'll get an answer um, which doesn't really get to the truth of the matter. Someone will say one thing, but they'll be doing something different, and that will teach us, show us that, in fact, um, there are issues that go beyond perhaps the uh, the, you know, the, the problem that someone's actually talking about. There, there are things that are more trouble, troubling. Or I'll, I'll give you an example. So um, in, one of the things that we look for when we go out and, and do observations is actually things that we call workarounds. So there are things that are probably everywhere you go, there are workarounds. Um, people have adapted things to make them work because they, mm. weren't, quite, they weren't quite adequate. For, for example, um, if you go under at least an office desk, probably under this desk here we're sitting at, um, and you'll see a row of um, electrical plugs plugged in, mm. You look at that, you have no idea which one of those plugs is plugged into which a piece of equipment. Hmm. And so in some places we've been, we've seen someone taking the time to go and label each individual plug. So you can say this one's for the computer, this one's for the monitor, this one's ah, for the Ah, because if it's time to unplug something, yeah. then you so can... Yeah. That's an example of a workaround, um, which you can find all over the place. And that's to us, that's a clue that says there's a problem that hasn't been solved adequately and so somebody is having to work around it. Hmm. So let's think about that and try and solve that. So in the case of a a hospital setting like that, um, an engineer's viewpoint, um, although that problem may end up being solved with good signage or all those kinds of things, um, is actually very valuable. So we, we, we try and bring in perspectives from all different sides, uh, um, not just uh, sort of the social science or whatever of, of people waiting in a, in a waiting environment. And I'm just curious, you know, in, in terms of me understanding, all of us understanding engineering better, uh, can engineering be a very human kind of enterprise in terms of, uh, or is it, or is, or is some of what you do on a problem like that engineering, but some of the other takes and other things. Yeah, engineering spans everything from um, some from what you might, well, I think people might think it would be, which would be something very technical with lots of equations and uh, materials and machines. Well, and, and things like, well, let's let's change this waiting area so people walk in a different way, versus. The procedures, maybe, that you do when people walk into the hospital now, is that an engineering problem also? Um, some of or those things really? would probably would, would, would span more into um, what I would call more broadly design. You know, I think actually mm. engineering actually fits into design in a, in a way. So design is actually even a broader the field than, than engineering. Right. Um, and, and, and so uh, one more example I can give you. Um, I, I worked on a product to transport human kidneys for transplantation. So when someone donates a kidney, it has to go from often one city to another city, sometimes across the whole country. Uh, and the state of the art uh, a few years ago was um, you put the kidney in a plastic bag with some ice around it in a cardboard box, and you ship it, and you kind of cross your fingers and hope it arrives okay. Right. Well, we worked with a company in Chicago who um, developed some um, technology that allows the kidney to actually be uh, perfused with a solution that, that actually um, looks after the kidney in transit, and it arrives in actually as good or better shape than, than when, it, when it left. As part of the research there, we had to go and watch some kidney transplants. And there was a moment in that process where the surgeon would open up this plastic bag with a kidney in it, and he would stand there um, and, and just look and, and touch and sort of feel this, this kidney, which represented actually a, 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 you know, the life of the person that was going into, because mm -hmm. without that organ, they might, they might actually die. And you could, you could, that was a very emo emotional moment. Um, and so as an engineer, you know, that empowered uh, me and the rest of the team to, to really sort of get behind th that, that emotional element of, of this process and enable something better to take place. So he was, what he was doing, in this case it was a, a, a male surgeon, what he was looking at there was, was trying to evaluate should I or should I not go forwards with this operation. 
Mm. Um, so it's, it's a very crucial moment. Um, and the technology that the engineering uh, group was able to bring to him was actually um, allowing him to have better information and make a more informed decision and eliminate some of that sort of anxiety and, and, uh, and guesswork almost that was right. in the process. So sometimes your firm is working with a company that is developing something, I mean, maybe inventing something and maybe wrestling with one facet of it that they're trying to improve? That would be a, 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 a typical kind of engineering question? Yeah, yes. And sometimes I suppose you're creating things entirely on your own as well? I mean, yes. sometimes you are inventing things in a sense. Yes, we, uh, IDEO doesn't, doesn't really get into the business of inventing, although we do have a, actually a, a business out in, in California, one of our, one of our um, uh, locations there that, that does is in the toy business, a whole different field altogether. Um, and in that case... Uh, we do actually sit down and just come up with crazy ideas and um, try and uh, find out which one of those might be successful in the in the field of toy design. And so that's a diff- different kind of an engineering, if you like. Um, but typically, we, we're trying to solve real problems for, for companies that have got stuck somewhere. Hmm. Kind of interesting, and I hope you won't mind me saying this, but I really think, depending on where someone is in the working world, that that the term consultant is not always a, a, a really positive one. I mean, often we think of consultants as people that, co- first of all, they sometimes cost a lot of money, and not that they don't perhaps deserve it, but it can be a very costly thing to bring in consultants who look things over and then you know try to make these recommendations. But often, particularly the people who are being directly impacted, view it sometimes as kind of an intrusion. Uh, somebody coming in who doesn't understand all this history or or the the deeply intrinsic issues that that make it they feel necessary to do things the way they do and so on uh, I wonder uh, first of all you know to what extent that kind of sounds familiar or rings true to you and uh, for those of you that do that kind of work who step into a, a situation which needs improvement um, how do you deal with that side of it which I should think uh, could potentially be uh, pretty uncomfortable, maybe even painful sometimes. Yeah, that's, that's a great, great observation. I think the term consultant is sort of a, a, a loaded term, and it's probably more loaded negatively than, than positively. Um, however, I don't think that I really experienced it that way in, in my, my career as a consultant. What I see, um, everything that we try and do uh, as consultants in the business I'm in is really to add value where it couldn't otherwise be created. So we're not there to um, displace uh, uh, work that could be done by somebody within an organization that we're working with. Um, Actually, what we bring is, the the value we bring is the outside perspective. So it's something that really can't come from within an organization because they are so engrossed and engaged with the work that they're doing that it's impossible for them to to easily get out of that mindset um, and see things that they might, might be missing. And so what we bring actually is Naivety, um, in, in many <laughs> yeah. cases, um, where we we will ask questions that they have long since stopped asking because we mm. don't know enough about about the particular field. They, the people that we work with in these organizations, they are the experts in the field. We, we don't come in as experts. We actually come in as experts in the process, but not in the particular matter. Ah. So, we, so we know what questions to ask and and how to find out some of the answers, but we don't come in with all the answers. Right, um, and that's absolutely. That's actually a, a very valuable place to to contribute. Of course, well, and especially if you make that clear. I mean, if you yes. don't come in with with an attitude like, "Boy, you're lucky we're here," you know, right, to, right, which we try to avoid, of course. Right, of course, <laughs> yeah. And I, I wonder if if uh, all consultants are as good at that as as uh, as you and your colleagues are. 
it's a, it's a it's a, it's an interesting quandary. And of course, sometimes people are caught in the middle of a mess and they know they need help, and yet you know can be feeling varying degrees of receptiveness to yep, yep. To so, something else we do actually that, that really helps is we work we collaborate very closely with the people that we work with so rather than us going away coming back with the answers um we'll we'll participate very closely so we'll invite um the key people from the companies that we work with to come along with us on the research trips that we go on we invite them into the room when we're brainstorming we you know we include them very much so so it's really it's a you know the goal is to get everyone on the same page, the same side, working to solve the same problem. We don't want to be adversaries in any in any way. So, so the the better we can kind of construct that team with a balance of people from you know outside a, a, an organization and, and within and and wherever else we need to bring in extra help, the the better team we can build, um, and the, the more efficiently we can have them work together, the quicker we'll get to a solution mm. and a, and a good one. We're speaking with Andrew Burroughs. He is an engineer with a company in Evanston. Uh, well, they're one of their uh, places of, of operation is in Evanston, a company called IDEO. And he has uh, put together a really fascinating, beautiful little book, actually, called Everyday Engineering, How Engineers See. It's a small book full of fascinating photographs and some very good observations made by Andrew Burroughs about the way in which uh, engineers view the world. Uh, to, to draw on an image from earlier in the interview, the way in which uh, an engineer might look at the case in which pastries are held, while most of us spend all of our time looking at the pastries only. They'll look at the hinges and the door and the handle and even where it's placed on the counter, I suppose, and all of those other kinds of details. You know, in fact, Andrew, it's funny, as you walked into the studio after we just chatted a little bit, I realized you walk into this on-air studio in which we're sitting now, and you probably look at this room differently than the rest of us do and uh, see certain details, certain things you like. And I suppose you're probably drawn to certain things, too, that you think, hmm, why did they do that? <laughs> yeah, there are, there are. I'm just looking at, as you're saying that, I'm looking around and I am seeing, I'm looking at the way these uh, the microphones are held up on these uh, brackets, you know, which I think is a pretty good system, actually. But I, what catches my eye is actually the little piece of metal that uh, is hanging out on the bracket there. And I'm wondering to myself, so why, why is that hanging down? The way, you know, is, it, is it longer than it needs to be? Was there something there that used to be there before and is now lo- mm. not there anymore? Um, is it yeah, what is that little knob? Is that a, yeah, is that extra material that could have been saved? You know, those are the kind of questions that run through my head as an engineer and probably a lot of other engineers' heads when, when we look around. Right. You know, it's so interesting just to talk about the station for a moment. Uh, I mean, we feel very fortunate to be here in, you know, these beautiful studios which were designed for us. Uh, but, you know, it, it's funny. I, in some ways, don't envy uh, our general manager who was involved in making, you know, a lot of these decisions in that, I mean, uh, you, you think of the mantle of responsibility that is, that you hope you are coming up, not that he designed every last detail, but was very much involved in it. But, I mean, that's quite a mantle of responsibility to try to design rooms in which you're working so the work can be done most efficiently and trying to think about all sorts of possible eventualities versus where we used to be in another building in a space that was not intended at all to be a radio station where they just or a studio where they just threw up walls. And so we had all kinds of interconnecting rooms. In fact, it was impossible to get from one end of the radio station to the other without walking through 
these other production and, and on-air studios. I mean, it was, you know, from a design point of view, it was kind of a nightmare because the whole thing was kind of a, what did you call it, a workaround? Yes, yeah. Um, so it's, it's very interesting for me now to be thinking about this dramatic shift between the two and, uh, and, and thinking about people that are out in the world uh, working in an, you know, a very optimal situation, carefully designed versus one that's where you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants mm-hmm. and, uh, and dealing with all kinds of problems that come up every single day. There is a technique that one of the tools we use to try and make that a little easier and improve our chances of success. Um, we use a lot of prototyping. And so what we would do in a situation where we are not sure if we're going to get the answer right is we would we would make a, a mock-up of some kind, and it could be very, very simple. It could be made out of cardboard and paper or, you know, just simple materials. We would make something very quick, um, low resolution, not, not finished. We would have somebody like yourself, you know, sit in the, in the chair there, experiment. Can you reach the things you need to reach? Um, and, and do that two or three times. So the design evolves from the initial ideas of what we thought was going to be good to something that was better than that by experimentation, mm. trial and error. In fact, you know, error is actually one of the things that we, you know, we like to see early on in the process because mm. if if we fail in a design, that means we learned something new. And if we learn something, then the next design is going to be better. So actually, the worst thing you can do is put a lot of time and energy and investment into making a beautiful finished prototype before you really are sure that that's what you, what you want to build. Because at that point, it's very hard to make any, ch- any changes to that and mm. it's sort of set in stone. So we like to go through a process of rapid iteration with, with physical prototypes usually um, mm. before we commit to you know, the, the, final, the final vision of what it's going to be. I suppose it's a little like uh, someone composing music and using pen right off the bat and really yeah. carefully formulating every single note. I mean, in a sense, the, imp- the unspoken implication there is that I really hope I'm getting this right the first time uh, versus, you know, dashing the initial inspiration on the page fairly quickly in pencil, sloppy, uh, and then, you know, then appraising it carefully. And then, you know, when you finally have a piece of music you're truly proud of, that's when you take out your pen. So there's actually an interesting interesting comparison. I think think, um, when I think of music and I I think of it as... um, there is some science to it, but certainly it's it's more art. So if you are a musician or composer, I should say, um, you can compose a piece of music, and if someone doesn't like it, you can just say, "Well, that's just tough." You know, I, it's my music, and, <laughs> and and that's the way I wanted it. And you know, you can choose to not like it. But when you're designing something for real people that actually have to use and has to be functional, um, you you are no longer the expert in in whether or not it's correct or not. It's actually judged more on its performance out there in in the real world. So right. if, you, if you put something out there like a car or whatever it be, if if it doesn't work very well, if it you know if the gas tanks blow up, blow up or whatever it is, um, you can't back off and say, "Well, that's the way I wanted it." You know, that's that's not going to work. <laughs> okay, so it has to work. It has to work. Uh, effectively, and especially in a competitive economy like the one we're in, um, if you get it wrong, you, you lose. So mm. it's very important to um, to get those things right based on how it's going to really be used by somebody out there as opposed to um, what your vision is of, of what you think it should be. Mm. So that's why we, we like to get people out there to sort of experiment and try things out. Right. Let me ask you about a couple of interesting things you actually say in your book. At one point early on in trying to help us understand how engineers look at the world and think about life, you say that we there is the stereotype that, that engineers are obsessed with precision. And you say, in fact, that really isn't a very good picture of... Of, uh, of of the work of engineers that, you know, why is this screw round instead of square? 
that that in fact you, your mission is, is a lot more than obsessing over maybe ultimately meaningless little details. Yeah, I mean, there is a time in a, in a process of designing and engineering something that that precision is very important. Obviously, it's a, but it's usually towards the end of the process. So, you when you already know what you need to build and you need to do a really good job, like let's say we're you know launching a space shuttle to the to the moon or something, um, you know, it's very important to get everything exactly right. But before you actually get to that point, there's an awful lot of um, thought that goes into what should, you know, what should that space shuttle look like? What, why is it that shape? Why is it, you know, those kinds of questions are not about precision so much. They're more about just uh, exploring the possibilities of what, of what it could be, um, eliminating the ones that don't seem to have a lot of promise and, and pursuing the ones that seem to have, uh, you know, more likelihood of success. Hmm. And so early in the process of engineering, precision is not important at all. It's really actually you want to be, um, you want as much variety and interest in there um, as you can possibly get because you might miss a good idea if you don't explore wild, widely like that. Right. Um, and as the process gradually um, narrows down, you home in on a solution that feels like it's the right one, then that's when you really do, do need to be obsessed with precision. But mm. there's a lot more to it than just that. Yeah. I'm reminded of the uh, Apollo 1 tragedy. If, if you know what I'm talking about, then for our listeners' sake, the, the Apollo craft that was consumed by fire on the ground during, uh, uh, I mean, it was not a, a, an accident up in space, and three astronauts perished. And I remember uh, hearing about the, the uh, testimony on Capitol Hill in the investigation after that, and I believe it was actually one of the astronauts in the program saying th- that the problem was that, that the people who designed that space capsule had thought about the possibility of fire in space, it had never crossed their mind. It had never dawned on them that something terrible like that could happen when it was just sitting on the, on the ground, on the launch pad. And, and because that possibility, that eventuality had never dawned on them, that possibility was not stirred into the, the, the design process, the engineering process, as it were. And in a sense, it might have been a case of, of minds not being allowed to wander sufficiently through all kinds of different scenarios. Yeah, yeah, and that's what a lot of what we do at IDEO is really um, get involved early on in these processes to really explore all the possibilities that, that something can, can be about so that we do get the most interesting and um, you know, innovative solution, but also the right solution and one that addresses you know, all the possible uses that, that something might go through. Um, something else in your book, again, we're talking about his book, Everyday Engineering, you say the contributions of engineers are usually invisible and often intentionally so. Uh, why intentionally so? Well, it's, it's an interesting, interesting thing that that's, uh, that makes me think about history a little bit. So, if I th- go back 150 years to sort of the, the industrial revolution and the era of where engineering was really um, uh, sort of lauded as something that could could make things possible that were previously impossible. You know, huge structures and bridges and and, and boats, and you know, and then we get automobiles and so on. Um, all those things uh, were were very visible, and um, the primary fu- primary sort of reason for their being was making something you know must happen. Now, if you fast forward through the last uh, hundred years or so, what we've found is that we've you know we've, we've learned how to do a lot of new things, but 
um, engineering has been, I think, somewhat relegated to uh, a, a, perhaps a, a back, a back, a back room in in the process. Mm. And design, in, in in sort of its aesthetic term, um, has moved to the forefront. Now we mm. know how to make a you know an electric mixer, for example. Um, then we don't need to show the workings anymore. We can actually take time to to hide those behind a, a facade, mm. um, and. Because of that, I think we've we've actually lost um, some of the visual vocabulary that we had maybe 150 years ago. We, it's not intuitive to most people now how a lot of things work because that that work those workings have been hidden behind uh, uh, a surface that's designed to um, to sell the product, but also you know to, to sort of interact with it in a, on a more pleasing pleasing in a more pleasing way. What I what I think I mean I, I don't actually know if this is possible, but I would like to think that. Um, we could we could actually do a better job of blending design and engineering together to create things that were uh, uh, more intuitive from a use point of view, things that could be just as easy to use as they are today, but also to do a little bit of, uh, if you like, education um, around the functionality of things so that... Uh, it would be nice if we could see the function of things. It would be nice if there was a little less facade in the way things are designed. Is that what you're saying? I, yes, I think... It, and here's why. So I think when things go wrong today... Um, and things do go wrong quite quite often, as we all we all know. Uh, it's the, the products we use are often impenetrable, so we have no idea why mm. um, our car won't start or why our phone stop working or whatever the, whatever it is we're using. Um, and part of the reason we don't know that is because we can no longer fathom how this thing is is working and, and functioning on the on the inside because we chosen to, to hide it away. So uh, I, I, I'd like to think that if we did a better job of actually bringing those those technological elements closer to the surface um, to kind of inform people a bit more how things work, we actually might be able to take things into our, our hands sometimes and deal with uh, uh, breakdowns of equipment in a more effective way rather than throwing our hands up in the air and saying, okay, it doesn't work, I'm going to throw it away and buy a new one or I'm going to you know, complain about it. Perhaps there's, you know, we, we can sort of educate ourselves a little better. Do I remember in the book at some point you talk about, for instance, the water we drink, the water that comes out of our faucet. I mean, all we ever think about is that that visible faucet and the things we turn, and we have no idea from there. I mean, everything else in terms of the water coming into our house and actually into our drinking glass, we don't see any of that at all. And you almost... It sounds like you almost wish we did. I, I almost do, yeah. I, yeah. I think if you, did, if you were to follow the water line back, um, you know, there's a lot of very interesting and fascinating stuff going on behind the scenes there um, that uh, we take for granted. You mm. know? And I think when things go wrong, we, we're in trouble because we have not paid any attention to how that kind of uh, basic resource is, is handled and delivered to us. I'm, I'm so glad you pointed out something to me, which I'm embarrassed to say I totally missed, the, the way in which this this wonderful little book was designed specifically the cover and the spine uh speaking exactly to this uh issue of the facade tell us about that yeah so uh, we spent some time thinking about what this book should be because it's an engineered object in its own way and one of the things that struck us was that every book is sort of constructed with some technology um, and then what happens is the cover is wrapped around the book and that technology is completely hidden in this case, you know, the, the pages of the book are stitched together with, um, with some uh, thread and then glued and then, again, covered up with a spine. So we, um, we actually tr- chose to reveal some of that, that uh, engineering, if you like, of how the book is held together by cutting away the spine around the back of the book in one section. So you can kind of look inside to see how it works. And there's a funny little anecdote to this as well, because when we first asked for this, this prototype to be built to see how it would look, 
Um, it was sent away to the, the bookbinding company. It came back with a little piece of paper taped over the stitching so that we, <laughs> so that we couldn't see it. And that's exactly the point, because people, <laughs> people felt that it was ugly. They didn't want to see how the book was built, so they should cover it up. And we didn't ask for the paper to be there. Someone chose to put that in themselves. Like they couldn't imagine that this is what you wanted. Exactly. So we had to go back and say, no, we really do want to see the <laughs> stitching, and, and you know, can you leave the paper off? And, um, and then ended up sort of catching people's eye as a result. Right. I mean, didn't catch my eye, unfortunately. No. Or, I mean, it did, but I, hadn't, I just didn't stop to think about exactly what you had done there. But it's such a wonderful idea. So, so in fact, a, a little strip off the spine of the book, the cover is is actually cut away. So then you're actually seeing, uh, at one point, the the actual edges of the pages themselves and the way they are stitched, and you can see that. And it is by stripping away the facade uh, that that it's possible then to, to 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 view that. The book is set out with, I believe, two major sections. Is that right? Yes. Um, Part one, creation. Part two, degradation. Explain uh, the, the, the reasoning behind that. Yeah. Um, as we've talked about already, you know, a lot of thought goes into the creation of objects. Um, a lot of you know, energy and time and, and process goes into how things are designed and engineered. Um, and yet, whenever we, when we make things, eventually they reach a point when they are finished and they're ready for use. And so uh, we, we put them on the shelf in a store, they get sold. And at that point, the, the engineering team, the design team has really little or no control over what happens. Uh, and so these, these objects, these, these products, these, these things get, get out there. And then there are a variety of forces that come to play. And so in the second half of the book, um, having sort of created something, what, I, what I've been looking at is how things slowly return to their sort of elemental nature. So, you know, everything's going to end up as dust eventually. And, and so mm. you, you, can, you can look at this, um, uh, these, these products out there and see how they wear, see how they're exposed to the elements, how the weather has an effect on them, see how people have used things or maybe misused things, um, uh, and how basically everything as soon as it's released, if you like, into the into the outside world, slowly starts to to kind of degrade. And and there there are examples of where of things where um, maintenance comes into play, and you you know you uh, you have a bridge uh, over a river, and you keep painting it every few years, and hopefully um, that keeps it in good shape. Um, but a lot of things don't get the benefit of that; they just sit there and they they slowly wear away. And mm. uh, and and there are examples of that in in the book. I like the subtitle for the the part two degradation: the destiny of the things we make. Yes, I mean there's there's really not much in the way of of exceptions to that. I suppose a few things, but there's uh, very few things that last forever. I'm, I'm sure, and and most of the things that ma- that made by uh, by man are not going to last that long. So right. Uh, so where did these various photographs come from? Yeah, they've come from um, actually uh, around the world. I, I can tell you there are some pictures from, of Kenosha in the book as well. Um, there's a couple of illustrations. There's an um, illustration of a, of a factory. Um, on, uh, let's see, it's on the page uh, 91 here um, in the section called Sequences. Um, uh, this particular factory, some of you may recognize it if, you've, if you see the book. Uh, it's a, a red brick building with um, what caught my eye was this... Um, air conditioning ductwork that has been added after the fact. Uh, and so when I look at that, I say, well, obviously when the building was, was built, air conditioning was not something that was standard, and so it was not built into the structure of the building. And after the fact, it became necessary. And so this, this thing was this somewhat sort of large, looks like a large hand made out of ductwork leaning over the side of the building. This, this extra structure was, was layered on top of the, 
the, the building that was there in place. And, you know, some might say it's ugly. Some might say it's functional. Um, uh, that's one example. The pictures also came from my colleagues from, from around, uh, from IDEO. Um, we have offices in, in not just in the U.S., but also in Europe um, and in, in, uh, in China as well. Um, and so uh, um, although I took some of the pictures, not all of them, um, there are at least half of them that came from all different places and some very interesting shots of uh, Eastern Europe and, and uh, other, other locations like that. And uh, th- these, are, these photographs are, are, are grouped according to uh, different kinds of, of, of things that, that uh, are, are quite, quite interesting. Like, for instance, uh, one section is called interfaces, and I think – if I remember correctly, that involves uh, when we have like contrasting materials next to each other interacting, as it as it were. Yeah, there's there's actually um, a field of design engineering called called interface design, and it's it's how often how people interface with machines or objects or or computer screens, for example. But what what got me interested in this particular topic was actually um, the interface between one object and another one. So um, in, at, its very mo- at its most simple uh, level, you might say a chair on a, f- on a floor, the foot of that chair is an interface that, that matches up with the floor pretty well. Um, there's one picture in the book of a, a park bench, um, green park bench, and uh, most people will, will recognize that park benches are often bolted down to the ground to keep them stable, keep them in the right place, and so nobody walks away with them. Um, now, this particular park bench, though, is in, um, is in a, a, a kid's uh, playground, and it's on very soft ground. And so there's nowhere actually to put a screw to, to drive that, that, that uh, to hold that thing down. And so what happened in this particular case was somebody put some concrete blocks underneath the legs of the chair and then screwed them to that so that the, the, the bench wouldn't move. So there, to me, there's an example, an opportunity that was perhaps missed by, um, by someone along the way here. Uh, wouldn't it be interesting to think about a park bench that actually had legs that were designed to go into soft surfaces rather than onto hard surfaces? So what if the legs of that park bench actually were looked like uh, large tent pegs or something, and you can mm. just plant that chair in a place, you know, push it into the ground, and it's, it's going to be pretty stable. It's not going to move, and it's going to be pretty hard to get out once it's in there. Um, that's the design. That's, that's the design of an interface between an object and its surroundings that um, not, we don't always give enough time to. Right. I, I want to ask you about the, the very next section, which is called Elegance, Balance, Harmony, Efficiency, and Simplicity. And you say at the very top of this, what is elegant to an engineer may not seem very beautiful to everyone else. Here, elegance means a judicious and efficient choice of materials or processes to achieve a goal. Yes. I really like the way you, you, you say that. So what would be uh, one or two examples of that, of that kind of elegance that an engineer would especially appreciate? Yeah, I think um, one example that's uh, very common is, is the bicycle. Um, the bicycle is a, an example of a, a piece of engineering design, if you like, that has evolved over time, and it's pretty stable. It hasn't really changed much in the last, uh, well, probably 60, 70 years even. Um, and the reason it hasn't changed is it's actually quite a good machine, quite a good example of, of design. I'm talking not about the sort of the color of the frame of a bicycle. I'm talking more about the, the chain and the mm. gears. Those are the things that really are, are – they, they have had small improvements over, over time, but they're, they're pretty static in terms of their evolution. Um, and to me, that, that represents elegance in the sense that we have something. We've worked out the details. It is 
pretty much as good as it's going to be and very hard to improve upon. Mm. It's good use of materials. It lasts a long time. It's relatively inexpensive. Um, all things that, that, to me as an engineer, go a, a job well done. Yeah. Yeah, well put. You know, it's funny. as we, uh, I, I find myself thinking about all kinds of things and realizing now that these are matters of engineering. And at the time, I wouldn't have thought of it. Uh, back when we were, our studios were in the other building, uh, and before this sta- studio was even conceived, um, our, our on-air studio was moved and changed and, and actually very dramatically improved. But I remember a colleague of mine no longer with us was in there one day when a electrician walked in and said, um, I'm here to put in the uh, electrical plugs. How many do you want? And, you know, this is just, he's an announcer like me. I mean, he was not really in a position to be making that kind of decision. He had no idea what to say. He said, uh, I guess as many as you can. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> and, and, and you know, this was one of those, I suppose, you know, because by its very nature, maybe it was that kind of a project where, you know, that kind of a decision, a fairly important decision in a radio studio was being made just kind of on the fly, not approached at all from an engineering point of view in terms of, well, what do you have in here? How many things do you need to plug in? Where would it be good to have these plugs? And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it was not a hugely consequential decision, and we weren't there all that long. But uh, but people probably find themselves sometimes backed into corners where decisions like that get made without thinking about some of these matters that that you're paid to, to think about and and uh, to which you can really bring some expertise. And it comes down to people designing their homes and choosing their cars and all kinds of choices we make all the time. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why I chose the title Everyday Engineering because it really is all around us. Um, and, and a lot of people are making those decisions by themselves. I was actually, funnily enough, I was thinking yesterday about Halloween um, and how creative people get with some of the Halloween costumes and some of the decorations that go off in, and go up in, in people's uh, houses and yards and so on. And I was thinking how good a job people are, you know, pe- people are doing great engineering work on some of those, <laughs> some of those costumes and some of those elaborate displays. Um, but they probably don't think of it as engineering. They probably just think of it as, um, you know, decoration or something else. And, um, and yet they probably are out there solving real problems. You know, how do I mount this, this particular piece of um, display in a, in a secure way so that when won't blow it over and, and all those kinds of decisions. Those are things that engineers do on a daily basis. So we're, we're all actually engineering our, our, our way through life in a, in a way. Um, but I think people don't often have the confidence necessarily to, to think of it in those terms or to feel like they can make those decisions confidently. Right. This nicely parallels actually the first interview that aired this week, Michael Pollan's best-selling book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. He's an expert on food. And one of the things he laments is the fact that we as modern Americans especially have lost all sense of where our food really comes from and how our food gets to us. I mean, from the corn stalk growing in the farmer's field to our table. Uh, or, Or how does it get to that product that we buy off the grocery store shelf? We have no sense of that whatsoever, and that's one reason he wrote the book that he did. And it seems to me that, in a sense, your book accomplishes something uh, very similar and similarly laudable in that you want to get us thinking a little bit about uh, the, 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 especially the physical world around us and, uh, and the way things get put together, uh, things which we have really lost touch with, but, but, but things that matter yeah. that help us enjoy and understand the world a whole lot better. 
Yeah, well, one of the things I hope that we'll, that we'll help to do is actually just encourage people to be more curious. Uh, I think we are very, very busy in our lives. Most people are, and so they go about their daily business without really, um, almost with tunnel vision, um, without really paying attention to what's around them uh, as much as they can. And um, I, think, I think it would help us in terms of dealing with uh, some of the issues we have in daily life to actually step back a little bit and uh, invest a little bit of time in, in figuring out how things work and, and what, what things are going on around you. Um, a little bit more curiosity in general, I think, is, is a good thing. Absolutely. The book, again, is called Everyday Engineering, How Engineers See. How can people get the book? Well, the book is available in, in places where you might expect to look for it. So you can find it on Amazon, for example, mm-hmm. um, and it's available in, in some bookstores. I can't tell you exactly where it is in Kenosha, but um, it is available in bookstores as well. Very good. Well, it's worth seeking out. It truly is. Everyday Engineering. And Andrew Burroughs, I have really enjoyed this. Uh, this has been so much fun, I think, very interesting. And I really appreciate you joining us today on The Morning Show. And very, very best wishes to you. Thank you for having me.